once I had a sobriety, I texted my dear friend and just said, Hey, can you bring me to a meeting? She said, Oh, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. So the following night, I went to um, a meeting with her and I was so nervous, but it was wonderful. It was one we could still do in-person meetings too, which was nice. And the acceptance I felt of that room was amazing. I didn't, I hadn't realized how isolated I had felt trying to do this alone and trying to kind of get through sobriety and, and just understand doing it all on my own. It was so isolating and the love and support I felt in that first meeting, it was overwhelming. I left there. I walked, I decided to walk home. It's about a 25 minute walk. And I was just bawling happy tears because I just felt like I had found the support that I needed in order to keep my sobriety, keep my sanity. And that friend of mine ended up being my sponsor. Today, I am really honored to bring you a good friend of mine, Cordelia May. Cordelia has survived many things on her recovery journey, and I am honored. And this podcast launches on her birthday, July 20th, 2021. And Cordelia will make two years sober and clean on July 22nd, 2021. And this episode is important to me because of courage. It's an episode of courage, overcoming childhood anxiousness and anxiety, overcoming sexual assault, overcoming addiction, and overcoming the complications of life. Cordelia is a testament on how we can keep thriving to shine, keep thriving to survive, and keep thriving to persevere no matter what life throws at us. And Cordelia was able to really overcome childhood bereavement issues with the loss of her mother. And this is just a powerful episode of Perseverance. And I'm so excited today to give her a big round of applause and to wish her a beautiful happy birthday. Enjoy this episode with my friend Cordelia May. Cordelia, my friend, keep shining. We see you and we're proud of you. Thank you. Welcome, friends and family, to the Soap is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan. And today I have a very, very dear guest to the Soap is Dope podcast community. Today we are interviewing Cordelia May, who is the founder of Sober to the Core, which is a blog about the recovery journey and her personal process. I am extremely excited to interview Cordelia today. Tomorrow will be her birthday, so this episode will be launching on her birthday. And July 22nd of 2021 will make two years of recovery. So we are really excited to have her on the podcast. Cordelia, how are you doing today? Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, too. So Cordelia has these awesome headphones that I totally want everybody, <laughs> and she sounds excellent. So Cordelia, I really want to get into it because you have a really, really deep story, and 
your life, uh, it's just a beautiful, I think, story that many people could relate to. You're talking about grief from a young age. That's um, being born and having social anxiety at a young age and just dealing with all of this and how alcohol kind of helped you relieve some of the social anxiety. And why that's important is because that was a form of mental health. That was a mental health issue you was dealing with at a really young age. And so mm-hmm. was the grief. Losing your mother, using your uncle Neil, um, your grandpa Ken. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I bring that up is that grief and depression is real, especially even in kids. And on top of that, being socially anxious, that's just a cocktail for self-medication um, and addiction. So can you just talk to us a little bit about your journey, your origin story? I want you to go back kind of to when you was a kid and in your mind, how that affected you on your journey and how you found addiction and then how you found your recovery. Can you tell us a little bit of background about you and your journey? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I was um, I born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, in Canada. And um, yeah, I'm the youngest of three girls. We had a happy little family, um, very tight knit. And from a young age, I was a very, I was a very anxious little kid. I was a very worried, they always call me a worried little kid, because we didn't really know what like anxiety was or anything like that. Um, And yeah, I had a lot of social anxiety, even just going to school could be an issue for me. And um, when I about at the age of 12, I lost my mom to brain cancer. And before that, we had already lost her brother, my uncle Neil, and her father, um, my grandpa Ken. So I was very surrounded by grief growing up. And it's a lot to process at such a young age. Um, so I didn't really know how to process it. And losing my mom was hard. Um, that was kind of me going into, you know, preteen, already an awkward stage, getting into high school. I was kind of a late bloomer when it came to partying. I didn't really have my first drunk, I would say, until about 16. I I fell into a bit of a rough crowd. And I remember having my first drink at a party. And I just thought, wow, like this is amazing. My social anxiety melted away. I was confident. I wasn't worried about everything I was saying. Like I wasn't going over everything in my head. I was like, who is this girl? Like, I like this girl. And that just started my drinking and drug career at a very young age, about 16. And we'd always party in, there's a park in Hamilton, Gage Park. Anybody who listens to who is from Hamilton will know park kids. (laughs) I was a park kid. And, um, you know, I'd spend my weekends there drinking whiskey. Um, I tried ecstasy for the first time, I think around the age of 17. And again, that just you know, any sadness I had been holding on to, anything I'd been holding on to, it just melted away when I was high. Um, and it was just that euphoric feeling like that first time. And you're always just trying to chase that. Um, and around the age of 17, I was raped at a bush party. Um, you know, it, it was such a huge thing to happen, but because I was, I was intoxicated at the time that when I woke up, I was just confused as to what happened. I woke up full of shame, full of blaming myself. So I told my best friend at the time, and then I just repressed it. And that, after that, looking back, my drinking and my partying and my doing drugs, it just completely, you know, got so much worse after that because I had so many, I I didn't know how to deal with anything, right? I didn't know how to process any kind of emotion. I was emotionally stunted. Um, 
And this continued for quite a few years. Um, you know, when around the age of 23 is what I like to say, like my drinking, my drinking kind of like grew up, it matured because then I got into cocktails and I got into the bar scene um, thinking it was like kind of classier. You know, I really love bourbon, um, fine scotch, all that stuff. Um, and I got into um, cocaine was such a huge part of my life too. Once I stopped doing ecstasy, I kind of, I, I remember trying cocaine for the first time when I was 19 and I thought it was great because it was more low key. You know, it was just kind of this fun party favor. Um, and cocaine's very funny too, because it's so socially accepted, you know, it, it, the amount of people that do it, it's, it's not like the other hard drugs where you're kind of shocked by it at all. Like if you go to a party and you see most of the people are doing blow, it's no big deal. Like it's just an after party. We're having a wild time. Um, so because it was just more socially accepted in the circle I was with too, I continued to do cocaine. You know, it was just a normal part of my nights out and it was just, it, it was fuel for me to drink more into the night because I could stay up and, and have a great time. Um, so about when I was 25, I knew I needed to stop. The hangovers from Coke were so terrible. You know, I'd wake up and it would just be such a downward spiral and it would take me days to recover from it. So, you know, I decided to quit cocaine. And when I say quit, I mean, I stopped purchasing it. But if it was offered to me, free drugs don't count. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and then I just... I became a regular on the bar scene. I was almost just like a little character. I'm a very social person. I'm an outgoing person. So I was a regular at all the bars, um, spending most of my nights out, uh, spending money I didn't have. And that was my life. It was just, my life was completely revolved around drinking and partying. And that was all I knew. Um, and this continued really up until I was about 27. And I did notice that, I would be the blackout started where I would just the last two hours of my night were a complete blur. I wouldn't remember how I got home. I would wake up in a panic being, you know, did I, did I pay my bar tab? I would check my online banking. Did I take a cab? Did I take a bus? Like how? And that became so frequent. And it really just, you know, even then it wasn't, I didn't see it as an issue. It was just like, Oh yeah. Like I just lose the last couple hours, but my friends would always say I was fine. So no big deal. Um, so that takes us to about when I was like 28, 29 and I had played around with the idea of getting sober because I knew, you know, I was always getting, every time I drank, it would be a blackout. And then that blackout would end in me crying myself to sleep and just bring out this, I had this deep, deep sadness in me that drinking would just always bring out at the end of the night. And I was in, you know, I was either hungover or I was partying and I was just so, I wasn't taking care of my mental health and I knew I had been ignoring it. And um, so I played around with the idea of, of not drinking for a month. I decided to try one month without booze, see if I could do it just to see. So it was a sober January I did and I made it 29 days. I made it till January 29th. And I did notice, you know, I do feel better. I'm saving money. Okay. Um, and then my, my partner at the time, it was his birthday. So on January 29th, so I said to myself, okay, well, you know, I can go out tonight, but I won't get blackout. I have a new, you know, I'm feeling so much better. I dried out a bit. I'll be fine. I'll just have a nice beer, really enjoy it, really savor it. And it'll be a great night. And of course I went out 
drank way too much, had too many shots, blacked out. And that night I came home. Coming home is a blur, but I do remember going into my bathroom, looking at myself in the mirror, and I was crying and my eyes were puffy and just vowing to kill myself. I remember looking in the mirror and just saying, I'm going to kill myself. I'm sick of this. Um, And when I woke up from that night, that terrified me because I'm not, you know, to even have suicidal thoughts, it really scared me because I was just like, that's not me. I'm not that person. I don't want to harm myself. And I knew it was the alcohol that was doing that to me. So I decided that day when I woke up, I said, okay, I need to get sober. I had no idea what to do. So I just said, okay, I'm just going to stop drinking. Um, You know, so I immersed myself in sober podcasts, sober books, um, anything I could find. And I got the day counter on my phone and just started it and just kind of went off on my own. And this went on for about four months. I did okay. And then it was my sister Calypso. It was her bachelorette party. And in um, Ontario, we have Niagara on the lake and it's a lot of wineries in that area. So we went to wine country for her bachelorette weekend. And I thought, you know what? I'll be fine. It's okay. I'll be the DD, even though I don't drive. But <laughs> um, So I made it through the first two or three wineries. Didn't have a drop. I sipped on sparkling water. It was okay. And then we went to this really nice dinner. It was at a winery. It was a set menu. And they would pair. I think they were pairing wine with each course. So of course the waitress comes by the server and she goes to pour me a glass of red and everybody at the table kind of went looking at me and I kind of had this internal struggle at that moment. And I said to myself, okay, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I've been, I've been doing so good for four months and really I think it was just self-control. Like I control what I do and I want to have this glass of red wine with this beautiful meal. So I'm going to have it. So I said, yeah, sure. So she poured me a glass of red and I remember taking that first sip and almost expecting like the walls to crash down around me, like some huge thing and nothing happened. And I just kind of went, oh, okay. So I had a glass of wine and then we went back to the Airbnb that we had rented and I had a bottle of rosé. And then I woke up the next day and I didn't have a hangover. So I was kind of like, oh, I was like, okay, see, I'm fine. Like I needed to get sober, but I'm cured now. So now I can start drinking again, like a normal person. It's no big deal. I could do self-control. And that was such a lie to myself. I can't believe that. The next, you know, I hear in a lot of sober circles, they say, once you've gotten sober, when you go back to drinking, it is 10 times worse than the first time. And like, oh my God, are they right? It went from zero to hundred so quick with my drinking, right? All of a sudden I was back to drinking every night more than I did before too. And I was back in that vicious cycle of, I was either blacked out crying myself to sleep or the next day terribly hungover and so anxious I didn't even want to leave my apartment um and I just went right back to that cycle and this brings us to July of 2019 it was my 29th birthday it was on a Saturday I think that year so the Friday before um we were gonna go out for dinner and then go to a friend's house for drinks for the after party for whatever So I had a bunch of drinks at this dinner, feeling great, went to this after party. And I remember somebody offered me a line of Coke and I took it. And then the next hours of the night are a blur. But I remember, I think I got home around five o'clock in the morning, woke up on my 29th birthday. I felt so terrible. I was hungover. I was sketched out from doing cocaine the night before. The only thing I could think to do 
well, I'm asked, I have to start drinking again because this feels terrible. So I need to immediately start drinking to make myself feel better. And I did. And I drank that entire day. My stepdad and my aunt took me out for this wonderful brunch, I think by noon. And I was half in the bag already and, you know, trying to try to keep it together. And I continued to drink for the next 14 hours, went to three different bars, finally stumbled home. And then when I woke up after that, I, I was a shell of a human being. I woke up and I just couldn't believe I'm 29. Everything I'm so desperately trying to escape from, I just spent my 29th birthday doing. And it scared me, but I knew that I was done. I was like, okay, this is it. I have to get sober because I'm not going to get better unless I get sober. And got the old day counter app back on my phone, redownloaded it. Um, and then really just tried to commit myself to it. And to really take it seriously, I told my loved ones that I was doing this and that, you know, this is the way it had to be. And they were, I, I'm so lucky to have, you know, such a wonderful support system. Everybody was so supportive of me. Um, and this continued on for about seven months. And then I ended a five-year relationship with my live-in partner, moved back home to my dad's house. Uh, it was the beginning of COVID too. COVID started and um I had gotten a transfer at work. I worked at the same store at my day job for almost nine years. And I got transferred to this new location, new people. It was a lot. It was a lot of change going on. And one day I was walking home from work and I just felt so lost. I had no idea where I was in my life. And this little daydream just entered my head. And I thought to myself, you know what? If I go to that bar down the street and drink, nobody would know. I wouldn't have to tell anybody. I could just go down there and start drinking. And then my mind started to go, do I still have my dealer's number in my cell phone? And even just that daydream itself, it scared me because I was like, I am not secure in my sobriety right now. I didn't know what to do. And I had a friend who I knew was in a 12-step program. So I decided to reach out to her and I just sent her a text. So instead of going to the bar that night and just ruining my seven months I had of sobriety, I texted my dear friend and just said, hey, can you bring me to a meeting? She said, oh, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. So the now following night, I went to um, a meeting with her and I was so nervous, but it was wonderful. It was one we could still do in-person meetings too, which was nice. And the acceptance I felt in that room was amazing. I didn't, I hadn't realized how isolated I had felt trying to do this alone and trying to kind of get through sobriety and, and just understand doing it all on my own. It was so isolating and the love and support I felt in that first meeting, it was overwhelming. I left there. I walked, I decided to walk home. It's about a 25 minute walk. And I was just bawling happy tears because I just felt like I had found the support that I needed in order to keep my sobriety, keep my sanity. And that friend of mine ended up being my sponsor. So her and I worked through the 12 steps together, did some very, very hardcore work on myself, self-discovery, healing. And that has brought me to where I am now. And then I decided to start writing this blog because I had so many things I wanted to like think about and talk about, about recovery. Cause I think it's such a beautiful journey and I'm so far from where I was those two years ago. And that brings us to today. I love it. And that's such an amazing story. There's so much to unpack. I was looking at something on your blog and I want us to shift to the um, conversation there where you was talking about forgiveness and self-forgiveness. Yes. Um, can you talk to us about that and have you forgiven yourself or started the process and tell us a little bit about why you covered that subject on your blog and what that means to you? Absolutely. So uh, yeah, the 
I think one of the biggest things that I had to do um, in my recovery this far was forgive myself. I had held on to so much. I had a deep, deep hatred for myself. You know, there was at some points during my drinking where I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. I hated looking at myself in the mirror because I was so ashamed some some of the trauma I had gone through, the sexual assault, I held on to so much shame. Some of the actions I had done when I was drinking, things I couldn't remember, things I wanted to forget. There were so many things that I had to forgive myself for in order to be able to really start to love yourself. And I think it is such, I wanted to touch on that because um, the the step where you make amends, yeah. I think it's such an important step. But I also think that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a route that everyone wants to take. And I think it's not, it won't fit everybody's sobriety journey. But I think that everybody should be able to almost have access. I wanted to make it more accessible to some of the step work that I think is so important. And the amend step, forgiving, asking forgiveness from others, but most importantly yourself, I think is so detrimental to the recovery process. Um, and that was one of my goal with one of that blog post in particular is making some of the, you know, the core values from AA, just making them more accessible because doing that work on myself, trying to forgive myself, it's hard. It's not easy and it's not fun. You have to go through some really, really, you know, dark emotions and you have to, you have to feel your way through them. Right. You just can't, cause that was, you know, the rape that happened to me when I was 17, all that trauma that happened to me, I was self-medicating. I was trying to not deal with those feelings. I didn't want to go through them. I just wanted to forget them. And working on forgiving myself and forgiving that 17-year-old little girl was such a huge part in my recovery. And I think it's so, so important because now you know, I, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm filled with hope and I love myself. And it's just, I'm a whole different, I'm not a whole different person. I'm just more of myself and i'm so happy with the person that i am today beautiful beautiful yes um uh, that was one of the most important steps for me i love making amends and 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 you know i always talk about this on the sober store podcast the importance of forgiving yourself yeah. and i mean really doing a deep dive there and especially in your case and with many other people who were victims of rape not to blame yourself right mm-hmm. even in the sense of the addiction like saying oh i'm drunk so it's my fault and that's not the case it's never your fault to be assaulted like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope you do the ongoing work. I hope you really um, work on it. And I hope you truly feel that in your heart. And I'm just saying that to you as a friend, Um, you deserve forgiveness. It wasn't your fault. And, uh, and I'm happy that you're doing the work. And um, it sounds like you welcome. It sounds like with the trauma, you're, you're growing through it, right? There's a lot of PTSD and things like that. Just, just all of those blackout nights alone for me is like just blacking out, not remembering things and what could have happened, the shame and all of that. It sticks with you. And the beautiful thing about recovery is once you have some sobriety time under your belt, a lot Mm -hmm. of that tends to start to fade away but it's still for people that are still in the mix of it. Someone is waking up right now that blew through yesterday that's waking up and they're like, Oh, I feel like crap. I don't know what I did. And you know, you feel anxious and afraid. You said something that touched with me where you was too scared to leave your apartment. And I remember 
it, I used it, I used to be so shattered. Now, so that feeling that you're experiencing is our nervous system is totally just broken up between mm-hmm. the cigarettes, the drugs, the alcohol. Your nervous. I was a nervous wreck, and I remember one time I was trying to get change out of my um, pocket, and a penny hit the floor. And it felt like the whole planet shook. Like my whole nervous system was, I everything rattled, and I was like, and I was walking down the block, and I remember going to the store and trying to give the guy a dollar to get a Lucy, a loose cigarette, and I was shaking. Like I just felt, and I was afraid of everyone, and I just had to go back home and just get in the house. And just thinking about that is like, what the hell, right? What a way to live, right? What a way to live, and we know. We put ourselves through that madness because we are allergic to the drug and alcohol and because we are addicted. And thank God for 12 Steps and AA and also my medical team. When they mention the allergy, the doctor's opinion, when they talk about the allergy, Mm -hmm. that like blew my mind because I was always a very fact based scientific kid. And I was like, wait a minute, that makes sense. I'm allergic to this because I used to always ask myself, my friend drank the same amount as I did. And he was fine. Like he just yes. drove us home. He was a little, you know, he was drunk, but he wasn't like, I was like a wreck. And then I have to wake up the next day. And that thing that you talk about feeling like a shell of a human yep. and needing to do that stupid hair of the dog. That's the worst phrase I think I ever heard. The hair of the dog gave me an excuse of instead of going to detox or the doctor or the hospital, because I felt crappy, to drink more, right? Go, go, exactly. drink, drink some more. You'll feel better. And then you'll feel better. It cures it, everything. <laughs> it cures everything. And the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. Yep. So I'm really excited you touched on that. I want to ask you a question which gives people context and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but it was on your blog. So I thought this was cool for us to cover. You had a picture mm-hmm. where you was kissing the whiskey bottles. I mean, you, the, the, the shot glasses. Can you tell us about that? Like, was the, like, what was the theme of that? Because okay, first of all, pop, that was right. one of like 15 pictures I found. <laughs> <on my face. laughs> I, okay. Going back, looking like for me, it was like drinking drinking was my identity. It was my persona. Like I was like, Oh, like Cordelia, she's so fun. She's always drinking. So, you know, yeah, here, here's me with my bottle of bourbon. Let me kiss it for the camera. And you believe I posted this thinking it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> like talk about, you know, the Facebook memories, they pop up. So I click on them and I, I it's just a full body cringe when I go through those. That's not cool. Yeah. It was like, that was a perfect example of just how I just surrounded myself with the drinking culture. It was all I knew. And I thought that it was my identity. Like I thought that it was so cool. And that was all I had going for me was that I was this party girl. I was like this little wannabe socialite, you know, of Augusta street in Hamilton, Ontario. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah. It was just this persona and that right there. Yeah. Me kissing. I think the one that's on the blog too, is I have, a beer in this hand yeah. and then I have my bourbon on ice in this hand and then I'm kissing the bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The reason why I love that is because I, I can relate and there is a certain level of, you know, when we deal with trauma, grief, sadness, um, shame, mm-hmm. when we go to these places, it's a sense of that expectation of community and feeling loved and being around it. And I used to like 
be racing to, I can't wait till I get to the bar. And I just wanted to make that connection. But the connections was always bullshit. Like, I mean, yeah. by, by the end of the night, I realized that everyone in there was searching for something that wasn't there. And it was all flighty and like fake. And it wasn't real. And what I was searching for, I couldn't necessarily find there. I can't explain that unless it's in hindsight, because it took me to be in recovery to understand that. But it's important for us to mention it for anyone that's still in active addiction, what you're searching for in these places is not the type of love that you truly deserve or need. And you could find the same type of connection in recovery and it'd be a little way more legitimate, right? Um, because when you connect with people in a sober way, you tend to realize who's full of shit, who's not, what's real, what's not. And then you still go home and you still have a whole party a day that you could really live. Um, so that means a lot to me. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about is you did something particular, right? So we're talking about alcohol and sobriety, but you also have to recover from drugs. Also, the cocaine is not easy to, so I want to give you your props, right? Because you, kicked ecstasy for some whatever reason when you found out the convenience and the social acceptance of cocaine, but then you also kick cocaine and then you also have to kick alcohol. How did, how did that work? Can you tell us like, what was the withdrawal like and how, how did kicking both being clean and sober affect you? Yeah, it was, um, I was, I'm going to say quote unquote lucky because my cocaine use, there was a brief amount of time around like in my very early twenties where um, I would use cocaine without drinking, you know, as soon as I was, it was in college at the time. So as soon as classes were done, I would start, you know, doing some key bumps on my way to whatever party I was heading to. Um, But I'm lucky enough where that part of my addiction, I really only wanted to use cocaine when I was already drunk. So for me, once that, you know, once I started taking those shots of Jameson's and I started getting to that certain level, a little thing went off in my head and said, we got to get some cocaine. Um, you know, there was a time where I wouldn't leave the house for a night out without it already in my bag. But when I decided to stop purchasing it and I wanted to, you know, it was kind of when I, around when I turned 25 and I just thought to myself, okay, I don't really want to have that look. I don't want to be a cokehead and a drunk <laughs> I'd rather just be a drunk. Um, so, and, but yeah, I was lucky that it was hard because when I first started trying to drink without doing cocaine, I didn't realize how high of a tolerance it would give you. So I was drinking the normal amounts that I would drink without having those party favors to keep me going. So there was a lot of nights where I was blacked out by 9 PM because I had already downed, you know, a bottle of whiskey by that time. Right. And I really had to adjust to it, but it was always surrounded me. There was a, you know, a group of friends that I had at the time, um, every party that would be cocaine. So if I went to go party with them, I knew that I would be getting offered a free line and I would probably take one. Um, so when I kind of cut out that friend group, it was a lot easier to avoid it as well. But like I said, I was lucky enough that I really, really craved it when I was drinking. So when I took out alcohol completely, um, Coke didn't really cross my mind as much. So I'm lucky in that aspect that it was a little bit easier for me to cut it out. Um, Yeah. That's amazing. So looking at you now, you're shining, you're beautiful. You have this energy, you're radiating. I wanted to ask you when you look in the mirror now in your recovery, what do you see now versus the shame and stuff that you was looking at before when you was in a 
intoxicated. When I look in the mirror now, it was actually a really nice moment. I was, what step was I on? I think it was step 10. And I went shopping and that little window that it wasn't locked down in Ontario for a bit, I went shopping and I tried on, I remember I was trying on something and I looked in the full length mirror at myself and I was just smiling and I was admiring myself for these clothes and a little light bulb went off and I said, I love this girl. I love this girl I'm looking at. Oh my God. I am enjoying, I went shopping by myself. I'm enjoying spending time by myself. And I pulled out my phone and I remember messaging my sponsor. And I was like, guess what? (laughs) I'm looking in the mirror right now. And I am so loving the girl looking back at me. And it was that moment where, you know, I, I just wanted to embrace myself and getting older too. I turned 30 last year being in my thirties. Now I love it. Like, it's just, yeah. So I really love looking at myself in the mirror now. <laughs> That's dope. There we go. Full circle, full circle. So let me ask you, what did you do last year for your birthday? It was your first year of recovery. How did you handle your birthday last year? Uh, it was fun. It was, it was um, different because it was my 30th, right? So you think right. about, it was a big milestone birthday, but it was wonderful. I actually got 30 donuts <laughs> and nice. we spelt out Three zero. The sugar cravings for me in sobriety are real. I love sugar. Um, but yeah, I just had a very small party. It was my sister Chloe was down from Vancouver. My sister Calypso was there, my dad, and we were on his back deck. I did have my sister Chloe went all out and she made so many. She made fresh watermelon juice to have with this lavender iced tea, all these fancy drinks, non-alcoholic. Nice. And it was nice. I just spoiled myself. It was uh, it was a good celebration. And I'm lucky enough to also, I can, I'm a people person now. I'm really good at being around people. So I don't need, um, it, I, I was easy to get used to not having that crutch of alcohol with me at a social gathering, a small social gathering. But yeah, so it was a really good birthday last year. Nice, nice. So shout out to your mom, Cynthia. Yes. May she rest in peace. Who Thank named you. you guys? You got some hot name. I mean, Chloe, They're, Calypso, Cordelia. That's right. Crazy, right? <laughs> I know it's funny. So my um, Chloe at the time when she was born in 1982, Chloe was not as common as it was now. So then too, it was like, what? Right. <laughs> uh, my mom loved um, getting us very unique names. <laughs> nice. Nice. I love that. And how's the family doing now? Pop, shout out to your dad. He's been holding you guys down. How did, how was your relationship with him during addiction versus now? Like, was he very concerned? Of course he would maybe as a parent, but I mean, like, I know he has to be happy and they must be very excited that you beat that. Yeah, he is. My dad is my angel. I, he went through so many hardships and when when my mom died, I was 12, Calypso was 15 and Chloe was 20. So we were three girls and women, like in various stages of, of development and everything. And he, he should honestly wear a cape every day. Cause he's a superhero. He did such an amazing job with us. Um, we, you know, we, um, there was a couple moments when I was 17 and would be stealing his booze <laughs> that he wasn't very happy with me, but he was always supportive that we, him and I are so close. He's one of my best friends and I always felt very comfortable talking to him about everything. He wasn't as aware of how bad my addiction was until really I got sober. So once I got sober, um, because I'm so comfortable talking to him, I tell him everything. He knows the nitty gritty. Like when I posted that blog, he knew most of the stuff that was in my sober story. So our relationship, if anything, just got stronger. Um, making the amends to him was my big amends that I wanted to make. And, you know, of course he had the response. Oh, don't worry. 
worry about it. I love you. You're perfect. And I'm like, thanks, dad. But it felt so good to just, you know, clear that air between us because I did hold on to guilt for how I acted when I was younger, putting him through worry and, you know, taking off for the night. And, but yeah, he's just, he is my angel. He's the most supportive father I could ask for. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, Sometimes we talk about mental health and the connection in recovery. And, you know, you listen to the podcast, so you know how passionate I am about mental health. Um, It seems like it was, the, you know, but the social anxiety, you seem like you got that under control. You're working on that. The bereavement, the loss of mom and your uncle. Um, Also, um, just the, and, and the shame and that was associated with the rape. Did you do any counseling, any therapy or, you know, how do you cope with these different facets of mental health? Yeah. So I, um, I actually found, I'm lucky enough at my workplace, we have a um, free counseling service. So I did go to, I sought out some counseling sessions and I found one who I connected with on such an amazing level. And she really, you know, I could just, I, I pretty much just the first session, you know, you just like pretty much just cry and word vomit all over her. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she gave me some really good coping techniques and I was, I finally started to um, just accept the fact that I did, I had anxiety and that my mental health was an issue. I was, you know, living with an undiagnosed mental illness. I had to kind of accept that fact and and try to get some help. So I tried many natural ways, which I still do now, you know, exercising and healthy eating, meditation. Oh my goodness. Meditation's honestly changed my life. It's huge. And I tried all those natural ways and that was great coping strategies for it, but it was still affecting my day-to-day life. And I went to my doctor I had a hard time finding a uh, a physician that I could connect with and who would actually take it seriously. Nice. You know, I would try to open up to them about my anxiety and and my depression and it would kind of get brushed to the side and oh, have you tried the Calm app or something like that? Um so finally I found a doctor that I really really vibed with and she did an assessment of me. We spent half an hour on the phone together and that's when I got a proper diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder and depression. And she suggested I do try a medication um, to see how it would work out for me. And it is honestly, it's very low dose and it has changed my life because it's made it more manageable in the fact that I don't have that everyday tightness in the chest. Like, you know, I remember calling my dad. It was, uh, I think it was week three of this medication. And I called my dad and I said, is this how you feel? Every- do you get to feel this good every day? <laughs> Is this how people just feel? (laughs) You don't wake up with that tight panic feeling in your chest every morning. It was just, yeah. So it's, and you know, if I had never gotten sober, I never would have dealt with this mental illness in a serious and proper way. I would just still be suffering silently. So, you know, right now you just hit it on the head for me. You made my day because And, you know, you and I have similar stories in such a way, like the process in which we find our recovery. We both went into AA, right? Um, We exercise, we meditate. That's so important, you know, and we also took the route of going to see someone about our mental health. Mm -hmm. I had to take Wellbutrin, which was um, to help me with my serotonin levels because I was like super sad, according to my um, 
therapist, no, my psychiatrist. And so I was taking serotonin for about six months. I don't want to take it anymore. That was in the beginning, but I felt it helped me. Um, but I have this all in approach that I talk about a lot. And that's what you're doing. You're, you're not just saying like, um, okay, I'm sober now and I'm good because that's the recipe for disaster. Because when we say one day at a time, we're not just saying don't drink or use one day at a time. We're also saying you have to work one day at a time. You have to do something. You have to be involved. You have to have ways to diffuse these triggers, right? Something could trigger you and you could say, you know what? I'm going to go running. That mm-hmm. shifts your perspective. It creates this mindfulness environment. Or I'm going to meditate, right? Or I'm going to call my therapist or, and all of these things. Oh, I'm going to just have my sugar. I'm, I'm going to have some cake or something, <laughs> right? Uh, all the moderation, right? But it's still, and that's important because I'm looking at you and Cordelia, I really want you to have long-term success. I want you to love and live and be free because we know addiction is a trap. Mm-hmm. And you know how you meet someone and you really care about them, you get to know them. And I, I only know this version of you and I would never want anything to jeopardize that. The beauty I'm seeing, the the, the healing that I'm seeing is so important. So we have a few things that's happening, ladies and gentlemen, with our friend Cordelia. She hits two years sobriety. And I know I mentioned this and I'm going to mention it again. Mm-hmm. July 22nd, 2021 will make two years. So what do you two have? Two years. Two years. What do you have? <laughs> what do you have planned for your two year? And you have to do something nice for yourself. Yes, I am going to um, my sponsor and another very good friend of mine who is sober. We are going to go out for a delicious dinner on a patio because we're allowed to now. Right. I'm going to get myself real dressed up and have a fabulous dinner and cake for dessert, I think. Nice. <laughs> right. And, and you're going to pair it with something really refreshing, right? Exactly. The best <laughs> seltzer they have to offer. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. And uh, real, real quick, you had posted something about non-alcoholic drinks on your podcast. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? I think I think it's getting, I don't know. I think it's a good place for it. But some some companies are getting a little extreme with it. What's your, what's your take on that? Yes, this I know this is a very hot topic and it's a very it could be very controversial. So my take is for me, you know, in, in the, after I was sober for a year, I was able to enjoy, you know, I tried a non-alcoholic beer. Right. I was able to enjoy the taste. I would always just have one because like, it's like drinking bread too, first of all, (laughs) you know, I would enjoy one and then move on to something else. Um, however, you know, a good friend of mine who's sober cannot even smell them, cannot taste them, cannot touch them. Because it can be very triggering for them and they don't even want to have the flavor. So for me, I feel, yeah, it's, it's tricky because I think if you don't want them to be replacing, like, I don't think somebody should be going home and drinking a 12 pack of non-alcoholic beers at night because for them, it might just be replacing one with the other. Right. Right. Um, I do think it's amazing that there's so many options for you know in that industry that there's so many options now they're making so many different ones i think it's really fun for people who may just want to you know some people really just do enjoy the taste of beer and they want to have different ones um but it is a tricky it's a tricky thing i think um whatever works for each person that's what i kind of touched on in the blog too it's just you know if you enjoy them you should be able to enjoy them freely um and if you can't 
do not touch them because <laughs> I know, you know. So you said it so well. So it's uh, it's just like recovery and the different avenues. It's not one size fits all. You know, me, I yep. can enjoy when I, so I have a funny story. My family's like, when I first, the first year of my recovery, I discovered old dudes and I was like, oh, this is perfect because I just needed something to cut the edge. And then one day uh, my stepmom was like, she was just like, look, Joseph, I got to talk to you because I don't like these old dudes, these old dudes. She's always saying <laughs> in a cute way. And then it was like I had a, a old dude's keg. It was like Pat, <laughs> Pat. I, and then so I got through that phase and I realized, OK, even that could be an addiction. And like you said, if you're watching your figure and you're not trying to like if you drinking, you're going to still get all of the bad benefits of the carbs and it doesn't really do anything. So I was like, let me chill with it. But it did help. Right. Yeah. Um, I know me. I can't go as far as like drinking a non-alcoholic spirit, like the makeshift bourbons. I'm not I can't even I just I'm yeah. afraid to even play with that because hard liquor is no joke. And that was my Achilles heel. So it's a one size fits all. But I'm glad you said it well. If it helps you, it helps you. If it doesn't stay away from it. Yep. Right. So what we have what's in the future for you? Sober to the core, your blog. And what, what can we expect from you? Are we going to get a podcast? maybe one day or- <laughs> maybe maybe i do this is you know this is my first podcast experience oh, and yeah. let me say i'm loving it so much um, <laughs> um right now so i'm gonna be working on a, a blog post that this is what actually inspired me to start this blog is this post that i've had in mind and it is a very deep dive into the trauma from my sexual assault when I was younger and the effect it had on my relationship with my own body and getting my sense of autonomy back and actually getting my sex drive back. So (laughs) that one is, it's, it's some heavy stuff. So I am, I am typing away on it, but that is going to be coming out very soon. Um, And that will really be talking on just, yeah, getting your body back and getting yourself back after going through such a traumatic event um, when you're in sobriety. So that is the big post I'm working on. It's uh, it's some heavy stuff, but <laughs> I'm well, looking forward to it. I want to be the first person to tell you that that's remarkable. And I want to thank you because um, I just, you know, someone did a, a bunch of people did to me in my life has been dealing with this and I'm, it pisses me off one. And the more people talk about it, it, it helps, you know, I have a young friend of mine that just, you know, we was talking and just in passing, she mentioned it and I'm like, well, did you, you know, did, well, we got to do something. And it was kind of like the thought never really dawned. And I was like, no, some things could be done and we could talk about it and work on it and we could do something. But the Absolutely. first step is talking about it. So thank you so much. And I appreciate that. And we're going to leave on this note. We have your birthday tomorrow. And I want to be the first person to wish you happy birthday from the Sober's Dope podcast to you. Go shorty. It's your birthday. <laughs> we don't party like it's your birthday. We're not going to sit Bacardi. No like Bacardi. <laughs> Thank you so Happy much, birthday. Pop. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be on this podcast today. I had such a blast. <laughs> it's, it's our pleasure. And I know you have a lot um, to plan. So I'm going to let you go. But um, thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for your process. It was a really beautiful process. And I'm glad you put all of that behind you. You always have a friend in me, a friend in us. So if anything ever happens or anything ever triggers you, you call me or you hit me up. All right. 
Absolutely. And the same goes to you. Likewise. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, friends and family, you're listening to the Sober is Dope podcast. That's a wrap for our episode with the founder of Sober to the Core, Cordelia May. I love you all. Go in peace. God bless. And we will catch you on the other side.